All right, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through 20. Then we're going to drop down and read verses chapter 4, 1 through 3. And then we're going to read Ecclesiastes 8, 10 through 15. So we are all over the place in Ecclesiastes this morning. Here's what God's word says. Read along in your own Bible as I read out loud. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there, there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and the man has no advantage of the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Drop down to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, just a page over. We're going to read the first three verses there. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are born under the sun. And then lastly, chapter 8, verses 10 through 15. The teacher says this, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before, before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, and for this, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. This too is God's holy, errant, and inspired word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, I've been gone at Disney World for six days, and so I feel like I have simply come through the deserts. And I uh, was writing my sermon yesterday and need to remind myself, why are we in Ecclesiastes again? So let me remind you, with a lengthy quote, sorry to read something right after having just read all those passages, but I want to, I want to kind of reorient us to where, what we've been doing in this, in, this, in this book and what it's about. This is a quote by David Foster Wallace. Some of you have heard. This is from his rather, uh, fairly famous talk. He's an essayist and novelist who ultimately committed suicide. But he gave a famous talk at Indian College in which you've seen very, you may have seen various YouTube videos that include parts of that speech, but he said this in the midst of that. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. 
You'll never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. The insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing, end quote. Well, what Ecclesiastes is doing is holding up a mirror and saying, this is what you do. And how is your life working? How is power working for you? How is health and physical beauty working for you? How is money working for you? And this morning we come to a new topic in which he is putting the mirror up to us. And he is saying, how is your pursuit, your obsession with politics and the pursuit of justice working for you? How is your talk radio listening, cable news watching, social media stalking, comment section campaigning working out for your life? Is it making you happier? And is it accomplishing much at all? There is a longing there, and a good longing. A longing that is not wrong or sinful in the face of it. It is a longing for justice. We are a people who naturally like things to be just and right and fair, especially when it comes to us. Children do not get far in life without uttering the phrase, that's not fair, to which every parent, everywhere, and every culture, and in every language says what? Life's not fair. And that is true, life is not fair. But something deep inside of us says that's not the way it should be. And maybe I, maybe I can carve out my one slice of fairness and justice in the world, maybe in my country, in my life. And we can become a people obsessed with seeing justice fulfilled in the world. This can take the form of being politically obsessed, the socially justice enamored, where you look for every social injustice under every rock, This could look like you take on the martyr complex in which you are the one who is perpetually aggrieved, the perpetually distressed. You're bitter and angry about all the things that others have done to you or to other people. And the only thing that you can talk about is the political world and the stupidity of the other and the unfairness that they have brought in your life. The passion of these type of folks who make justice and seeking justice their great obsession in this world is their life revolves around this, them, this thing, and this becomes a black hole that comes with bitterness and anger and destruction to relationships. Nothing, nothing in the life of the evangelical American church in the last 10 years has destroyed and ripped the church apart more than this idol. It is killing us. And the teacher, as he had done with so many other things, has looked at us and said, work Pleasure, money, religion is now pointing out the problem of building your life around justice. That too is vanity, he says. He is saying that if you want a life of meaning and happiness, then you need to learn some things about justice 
under the sun. And here's what they are. Here's the first thing. First is this, that justice is vapor. Here's the truth, plain and simple. We live in a world of injustice. We are surrounded by it. It is pervasive. It is individual. It is structural. It is systemic. And it has always been that way. Have there been monumental efforts to pursue justice in human history? Absolutely. People have died, good deaths, rightly pursuing justice, both for them and for their tribe and for the justice of others. We as Americans have put liberty and justice for all in a side-by-side tension of desire. The teacher is looking at us, though, and saying, even with all of our monumental efforts, Through the centuries, no matter the deaths of the millions in the name of seeking justice, the world remains a place where injustice reigns. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was also wickedness. In verse five, chapter 4, verse 1, again, I saw the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. The teacher says in Ecclesiastes 3.16, I saw, I saw. That means his eyes are open. You might even call him Woke. He saw the injustice of the world. He saw that children are ripped from their mother's wombs and those who did it profit and are made rich by it. He saw that a Russian tyrant and his armies slaughter the innocent in cold blood. He has seen it through the centuries and he sees it again. He saw that the impoverished were trampled by the wealthy. He saw the litigious lawyers holding hostage lives with frivolous lawsuits. He saw the payday loan systems where they prey upon the poor. You know, a couple years ago, there was one particular state that had to pass a law in their state to limit payday loans to less than 20% because they were charging an APR of 387%. This is why in Georgia we have laws that limit this. He sees the CEOs who get rich and rewarded even after bringing whole countries and businesses to economic collapse and millions of lives devastated by it. He sees the injustice of of the government who takes the taxes from folks for their entire lives and then upon their death then takes half their estates. He saw the injustice of the governments who take the lives of those who are actually not guilty. He saw the unspeakable justice of sex trafficking. We are one of the, the Atlanta, a city in only 45 minutes from us, is one of the capitals of it in our own country. He saw that even the places that were supposed to be designed, what does it say in 316? The places that were designed to seek justice, it was there that he saw the most profound injustice. In other words, what he's saying, that the places, the people that were supposed to bring righteousness and justice, there, they were not halls of justice, but they were halls of corruption. Robert Linthicum, who was an urban pastor, tells this story about when he was 22 and pastoring in one particular urban area. He was working in the housing projects, and he met a girl named Ava. Ava was beautiful, but she was poor, and she had a terrible, broken family. But then she became a Christian, and she began to blossom in life. One day she came to Robert, and she said she had a problem. A gang in the neighborhood was recruiting women to be prostitutes for wealthy white men in the suburbs. And he said, well, why don't you just simply resist and run away and flee the situation? 
And that's where he left it with her. And then he went away to serve another ministry for the summer before coming back in the fall. And while he was gone, when he came back, he, he, he was, didn't see her at church anymore and around the ministry. And he went and he found her and he found that she was selling her body. And she confessed that she had succumbed to this gang. And he was indignant. He said, Ava, how could you give in to what they've asked? And she said, because they came and they beat my father. And they beat my brother. And they raped my mother. And he said, well, why did you not go to the police? And she said, the gang was the police. The injustice. Where there's supposed to be righteousness. And those upholding justice. It is so tragic when those who are given that task are people of injustice. But it's also unjust when those who are good and right who seek to bring about justice are then blamed for the failings of the unjust around them. Ecclesiastes 4.1 says power is on the side of the oppressed. Power. You know, there's a whole academic study that reflects around power and its oppression of others. You know what it's called? Critical theory. Uh-oh. Koheleth might be one who at least sees something in that theory. And indeed he has, only that he will provide, say the problem runs way deeper than critical theorists. And he's going to say that there is something that we need that is far are those who end up oppressing, and he sees it. And so what do, we, what do we do? We cry out, how long? How long, O Lord? And every generation rises up and says this. Every generation this generation is not seeing more or less injustice than the previous generation. And that's why John Lennon wrote songs like Imagine, and John Mayer saw us to write songs like Waiting for the World to Change. We live in a world where it is vogue for us to be very much about ending injustice. We put red X's on our hands to call for, symbolically for the end of human trafficking. However, ours is a world where the powers are corrupt, and even those who call for mercy misuse the resources we give them. You know, a couple years ago, somebody did a study and they, after one of the earth, devastating earthquakes in Haiti, and all these people were flooding Haiti with all this money to all these various NGOs and, 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 and companies that were supposed to do stuff to help Haiti, and they found that more than half the money never reached Haiti. Even the places of mercy that we seek to do will come to naught. Solomon's point here is that there is no net gain. You cannot end oppression altogether. You might try really, really hard to end oppression in one little corner of the world to set it in with some degree of success, only to find that oppression then bubbles up somewhere else. For every Hitler that is overthrown, there is a Stalin that rises up. For every Pol Pot that is destroyed, there is an ISIS. While all books intend, all other books seem to intend to encourage us in the Bible that says to help the poor, Ecclesiastes intends to expose us to the meaninglessness of saying, if my life is only meaningful, if justice is, is present. The whole thing can be very discouraging, and it is a real gloom that we feel, and we should feel it. Commentator Derek Kidner says this, if the preacher's gloom strikes us as excessive at this point, then perhaps we may need to ask whether our optimistic and cheerful outlook springs from our true hope or from the complacent bliss of willful ignorance. To summarize, what is the teaching of the teacher here? He is saying the justice is in fact fleeting. It is vapor. The second you try to grasp it, it is like wind it'll rush through your fingers. And so what are some of his practical wisdoms that he gives us? 
Well, he says, one, seek justice, but don't be surprised by injustice. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8 says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed by the matter. In other words, some of you seem to be very, very shocked that our politicians are corrupt. This should not shock you. This has been going on since the dawn of time. Grieve it when justice slips through your fingers, yes, but don't give up and don't become cynical. This is the way of things. And if, you, if, if your, your sense of happiness and encouragement and joy in this world is dependent on whether you're going to see justice, then that is a very shaky ground. And so he says this as well, application two, therefore enjoy what you can. Enjoy the labors for justice that you can. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 22 says this, So I saw that there is nothing better than the man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? In Ecclesiastes 8, verse 15, And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Here's what I'm saying. Some of you live an angry, bitter, and constant state of agitation over the political and justice state of things. And the teacher wants you to have a better life than that. And so he wants to reshape your expectations. In other words, for so many of you, all of your anger and bitterness by your constant doom scrolling is robbing you of today's good work. There is just work to do. And simply henny-penny pulling your hair out is not helping the problem. All of your agitation does not change the world. And there are real joys that what God wants to give you today. I'll give you an illustration of, of one who learned this from the wisdom of Cormac McCarthy. Some of you know Cormac McCarthy. He is a brilliant and a brutally honest author. He, his, one of his most famous books is No Country for Old Men. It was made into a feature film. And in fact, it won Best Picture. Now, if you saw it, here's what has to stand out more than anything else for the movie, is the villain of the movie, Anton Segur. I had bad dreams for weeks. And I was a grown adult when I saw this movie. But my favorite scene is towards the end when Sheriff, whose name is Ed Tom, played by Tommy Lee Jones, goes to visit an old relative in a wheelchair, another man who was a former lawman named Ellis. Ed Tom asked Ellis what he would have done if the man who had shot him, Ellis had been shot and paralyzed for life by a man, who had gotten out on parole and released from prison while Ellis was confined to the chair for the rest of his life. So the man that he shot, that Ellis was shot by, had eventually gotten out of parole. Ellis was confined to the prison of a wheelchair for the rest of his life, and the man who shot him is now running free. And so Tom asked him, now what would you have done if he had been released and if you came across him? And here's what Ellis said, and this is the wisdom of the teacher. Oh, I don't know. Nothing. Wouldn't have been no point to it. Ed said, I'm surprised to hear you say that. Ellis responds, well, all the time you spend trying to get back what's been taken from you, the more that's going out the back door. After a while, you have to get a tourniquet on it. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying what the teacher's saying. Think about how much time you end up stewing over all the injustice in this world. And think about all the time that's wasted because of it. And at some point, you have to put a tourniquet 
on all that agitation and move on. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes is telling us, and he's counseling us, you got to put a tourniquet on it. Enjoy what God has given you. You don't know what's coming around the bend. Set down your anxiousness over the injustice in this world. You are not the king. You cannot stop it all. You cannot adopt every child. You cannot put an end to every unjust law. You cannot destroy even one dictator yourself. Enjoy the just and good work that God has given you today and do it. Put a tourniquet on it and go and enjoy life. Now you say, now listen, my, my TV this whole week has been filled with scenes of those who have been murdered in cold blood in their streets. There's a man named the Butcher of Buka who's running free. You want me to enjoy my life in the midst of that? Well, that leads to our second lesson. You are not the judge, and the vapor of justice will slide through your hands, but it will not slide through God's. You're not the judge, God is. And so point two is this, justice is coming. Now all this the teacher's talking about is life, remember, under the sun. Justice under the sun is a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And as soon as justice is found, it will disappear. As soon as we overtake Roe versus Wade, you know what will happen? Every liberal state will pass new laws to make abortion more available. It will slide through our fingers. That does not mean we don't seek it, but it means we look to the one who is going to bring ultimate justice. And this is the judgment of God's retribution. We, from our limited perspective, we can see no end to oppression and abuse in this world. But the Gospels and the epistles and the word of God from beginning and end says that all injustice and wrongfulness has an expiration date. Evil will be called into account. Chapter 8, verse 10, it says this. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things, but this is vanity. That means their reign will eventually slip through their fingers as well. And Ecclesiastes 8, 13 says, But it will not be well for the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. And so we affirm things like the Apostles' Creed where we say this, I believe he shall come to judge. And when we say that, we say, praise be to God. Do you rejoice in that truth? In the face of week after week and day after day of newscasts of murders and oppression and injustice, it is a rejoicing, worthy thing to say, praise be to God, he is the judge who's going to bring his wrath to bear upon these things. Our confidence does not lie in a justice system, but it lies in the chief justice himself, Jesus Christ. God has promised a day when the Son will judge both the righteous and the wicked. The wicked will be punished forever, and the righteous will be comforted, and their tears will be wiped away. And as the preacher will go on to say at the very end of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 12, verse 14, he says, God will bring every deed, every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And there is this profound image at the end of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, it says this. You don't have this on the screen. But follow along and and grasp this image. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it, Have you seen the picture of Putin riding shirtless on a horse? Compare him to this guy. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. 
His eyes like are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. And here's what it is, King of kings and Lord of lords. And all God's people say, amen. We live in the sure hope and the certain expectation of that great day. Whenever we see injustice, we think of that day. Especially when we see acts of oppression against the powerless that we can't prevent. You can, you can have one little scrap of place where you seek justice in this world. That may be adopting children. It may be pursuing the end of sex trafficking. It may be you seek to be part of the legal system and bring about just laws, whatever it may be. But this is where you find a fuller justice, where you can look and watch the news and not simply just grow angry, but you have something to do with your anger, which is to get on your knees, put your hands up and say, praise be that there is a king in heaven. And then you can also do things like the king of Jerusalem did. His name is David. And he, about 10% of the Psalms were what we call imprecatory Psalms. It is to pray against something instead of for something. It is to call down calamity and judgment and cursing. Here's a few of them if you want to go with some help on some prayers against Putin this week. Psalm 5, 10, 17, 35, 58, 59, and 69. You go read those and you are calling down hellfire upon his head. The point is that God's people should be inspired to read and pray prayers that say this. God, would you bring your justice down on those who do harm? And then we look to the incarnation, and we sing as they sing at Christmas, their line that goes like this, in his name, all oppression shall cease. But there is a problem, and that problem is us. Ecclesiastes 3.17 said, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. God the just is going to do Ultimately, he's going to judge all this oppression in the world. And we rightly say, go get them. Sick them. Crush them. But then the teacher follows that verse with this verse. Verse 18. A very strange verse. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Uh-oh. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. In chapter 8, verse 11, he says this, because the sentence against evil is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man, the heart of man, is set upon evil. That, you know what? You're part of the children of man. And that's a problem. If you, for a moment, it seemed as if God's judgment would solve the problem of injustice, but whatever relief the preacher felt was only temporary, because now we must face not just the problem of injustice, but now but you and I must face the problem of justice. Here's the bad news. It's going to take a minute to describe. Our present existence, and I'm going to try to help you understand these verses I just read about we're like beasts. Our present existence is a proving ground, he says. It's a test not simply in the sense that we pass or fail, but in the sense that something about us is demonstrated. That over the course of our lives, your heart is revealed. And this test is not for God's benefit. 
It's to expose you to you. It's so that you can recognize that our problem is not just morality, it's our immorality. Time and history shows at the heart of man that we are like animals. We were given a conscience in which we were to rule over the world and to do right and good, and yet we rejected that. And so we become like animals. Animals have no concept of justice or right or wrong. The animal kingdom is red in tooth and claw, but so is this animal kingdom. It's called the human kingdom. Might makes right, and oppression is everywhere. The ways we treat one another are so often utterly despicable, and I'm not talking about the way abortionists treat children and the way Putin treats Ukraine. I'm talking about the way you and I treat each other and those around us. Later, Solomon contends that God delays judgment to show that we are inclined to wicked acts. He says that we are a people whose heart is filled with a desire to commit crime. God delays justice to show us that we are wicked and like beasts. Solomon reveals an explicitly that similar to men and beasts shows that we have no advantage of the, like, over them. That we act like them and then we die just like they do. And here's the point. We want justice, and we want things to be set right, and, like, and, and we want God's justice to come about. But what we don't want to acknowledge is our role in it. Because if we did, we would see that in our hearts is an oppressive heart, and it's in our heart is an unjust heart, and that this is our problem too. And if God's justice comes today, I will be crushed just like the Putins of the world. God will not hold evil and injustice accountable without holding us accountable as part of it. The problem is that we do not like to recognize our unjust acts. When someone wrongs us, when they steal our identity or break into our house, we want justice. But when we are pulled over for speeding, what do we want? Mercy. We want justice for others and mercy for ourselves. History is the story of one group of people justifying their act of oppression and injustices because of the evil of those who went before them. This is the story of history. What injustices and what oppression are you willing to put up with in order to get the type of justice that you want? We are all playing a game. What oppression are we willing to subject others to in order to live with the freedom that we desire? to have the things that we want and the comforts that we so desperately desire. We need to recognize that even though we cry out for justice, we don't actually want it for ourselves. Life's not fair. Yeah. And that's a good thing. Are we not glad that God has not set evil right immediately? None of us would be here. Solomon tells us in this section of Ecclesiastes, you see that the wages of our plight in the justice of the world is death, and we are part of it. So how do we seek justice without being crushed by God's justice upon us? This is the third point. Justice is coming, but we also have to recognize this, that justice has come. The good news is that the first time that the king enters under the sun, he did not come riding a white horse. He came riding a, a donkey. God has entered into the oppressive world and subjected himself to oppression and injustice. The second of the person of the Trinity took on flesh and was born of Mary, and he lived his whole life on, 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 on the go, on the run from oppression from Roman rulers and Jewish rulers. 
He barely escaped death under the despotic King Herod in his puppet reign where he slaughters all the children under the age of three. He had to flee to Egypt from his earliest days. And then Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Meek and lowly he comes. And what happens? At first the crowd shouts, what? Hosanna. But by Friday they are shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. And they have a choice. The weakling and the quizzling Pilate puts before him. Would you like Barabbas or would you like Jesus? And they say, we want Barabbas. Set Barabbas free. Set the murderer free. Set the insurrectionist free. Let him go. We want Jesus dead. Talk about injustice. They choose a murderer and a Barabbas to go free while the power of the mob and the weakness of the government give way to injustice so that the perfect, righteous, blameless, pure Son of God is crucified. There is no more act of greater injustice than that. But the good news is this is that in that act, Jesus took on all your injustice and all your hearts of oppression. And the good news is Jesus got, brought your judgment that you deserve and he poured it out on Jesus. Therefore, justice is not simply waiting for you at the end of history. There is a justice that has come in the middle of human history that is poured out upon God's son on the cross. How, and how can you know? How can you know that what waits for you is not the coming judgment, but that you've been covered by the past judgment of God upon his son? Well, I'll ask it more simply. Do you fear the Lord? Because that's how Ecclesiastes asks it. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 12 says this, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Fearing the Lord. What have we said that fearing the Lord means? We've said it every week. Fearing the Lord means living in view of the reality of who God is. And the reality of who God is for our text today is he is the eternal judge. And under his reign and rule, all injustice and all oppression, oppression will be dealt with. Now, there are two ways that justice is satisfied. One is through the atoning work on the cross. Or two... On Judgment Day, those are the options. Vicarious atonement or retribution on the final day. Justice comes either through the atonement on the cross or when you meet God face to face. No act of injustice is going to be held unaccounted for by God the judge. And so the question for you is personally, how will you deal, how will your injustice and oppression be dealt with? For those who do not fear the Lord, there will be retribution. Mark God's words. God's retribution of judgment is for those who are too prideful to, prevent, to, to repent of their wrongs. It's not those who have never done anything unjust. It's for those who are unwilling to repent of doing things that are unjust. You see, that is who the world would say is going to be crushed. That's who God says is going to be crushed. Those who are unwilling to submit to his rule and reign now. And you say, well, why does God have to bring about retributive justice? Why can't the cross be enough? Well, the answer is this. Some people simply prefer to go to hell. They simply prefer to go to hell as an oppressor and as an unjust one than submit and serve God the king. Let me give you an example of this. There's a parable called Rich Man and the Lazarus. There is a man named Lazarus who, not the Lazarus who died is raised again. There's a man named Lazarus who is a servant, a poor man who serves at the feet of a rich man. 
And Jesus gives this parable and says the rich man dies and he goes to hell and he's really ticked off about this and he's really sad and it's really not a good experience. But the rich man says to Abraham in heaven to send Lazarus down with some water. Do you see this? He doesn't ask to leave hell. He simply wants Lazarus to keep serving him. Which means this. In other words, he wants Lazarus, he would rather have a servant in hell than be a servant in heaven. He'd rather have a servant in hell to continue to oppress poor Lazarus than go and be a servant of God in heaven almighty. This is the meaning of the proverb, a new meaning that says, pride goeth before the fall. And this is how the tyrants of this world will end. There's a woman named Svetlana. She wrote a book. It was about a tyrant. It was about a tyrant who murdered millions It was about her father. Stalin's daughter wrote a book in which she described his final moments in which she said this. At what seemed like the very last moment, Stalin suddenly opened his eyes and cast a glance over everyone in the room. It was a terrible glance, insane and angry and full of the fear of death and the unfamiliar faces of the doctors bent over him. The glance swept over everyone in a second and then something incomprehensible and awesome happened. That is, to this day, I can't forget and don't understand He suddenly lifted his left hand as though bringing down a curse on us all. The gesture was incomprehensible and full of menace, and no one can say to whom or what it might be directed. But the next moment, after a final effort, effort, the spirit was wrenched itself from him, and the the flesh was free. What it seems to describe is a man who prefers to ride on a high horse into hell than ride the donkey of service that God gives to him. There will be a reckoning for these. But for those who fear the Lord, for those who live in the view of the reality of who God is as judge, for those who confess their sins, those who confess their own oppression and their own heart of hatred, and those who plead for the atoning work of Jesus, that coming judgment will be a day of welcome. And you know what? Living in view of God as judge means more simply than simply confessing your sins of injustice now. It will mean you can actually seek justice today in whatever small way God calls you to in view of the coming kingdom of God. Living in view of God as the just judge and kings means that you live in faith knowing that injustice and oppression will not have the final word. And what that means is this. You may try to put an end to sex trafficking And you may have only this much effect. And everything about your life may look like, in fact, and then at some point it may look like everything has been washed away. All your efforts towards justice may be washed away. But you still pursue it. Because we know now we are participating in the coming kingdom of God. And that because of the cross of Jesus Christ in the coming king who will judge fully and finally at the end, he will complete the work that you are participating in now. So you can pursue justice where you are. You can enjoy and take pleasure in seeking goodness and kindness in the place where God has called you to live and be. You can act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God, not with despair, And we can be about seeking justice without cynicism, without bitterness, without a martyr complex, but simply seek justice in the small ways that God has given you to seek it today. And we can hold our hands out openly and we can say, I'm going to do justice right here and here, in the very place that God has called me to do it. And what is that for you? Maybe that's you adopt. Maybe that's you get involved in foster care. Maybe that you get involved in the legal system. 
and engaging with poverty. But we can hold our hands knowing this, that through because of the cross, in the cross, that the, even in the worst act of injustice, that that is not the final word. It's not the final word. Because the injustice of the cross is not the final word. Friday is not the end of the story, is it? Because Sunday's coming. Hint, hint. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are people who are so given to despair and cynicism and anger and so, so full of these things as opposed to full of goodness and truth and kindness and love. And mostly, we are so full of bitterness and anger in our words and so few in prayer. So Lord, my, my specific application that I would love for you to make us to be is it a people who don't constantly shake our fists at the TV and at social media, who don't constantly run around perpetually agitated and cynical. But Lord, you, you would make us a people who live quorum Deo before the face of God on our knees with our hands open, saying, God, you're the God who's going to bring your perfect kingdom to bear, and so how would you call me to be a part of that work today? And that we would enjoy the work that you give us. Whether we see the evidence of our successes in our work or not, that we would trust looking forward to the future knowing that the king is coming and that he is bringing his perfect justice to bear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.